Welcome to another edition of the Science House Foundation podcast series, where we talk about the future of science and mathematics education, imagination, learning, and global collaboration. Today's guest is Michael Nielsen, author of a new book about networked science entitled Reinventing Discovery. The book is extremely clearly written and accessible to scientists and non-scientists alike. Michael's an excellent writer, and I highly recommend it. I'll place a link on the website for listeners who'd like more information or on how to purchase it. In addition to his recent book, Michael is one of the pioneers of quantum computation. Together with Ike Chuang of MIT, he wrote the standard text on quantum computation, which is the most highly cited physics publication of the last 25 years, and one of the 10 most highly cited physics books of all time, according to Google Scholar. He is the author of more than 50 scientific papers, including invited contributions to Nature and Scientific American. I spoke to Michael via Skype from his office in Toronto, Canada. Michael, thank you for joining us on the Science House Foundation podcast. Thank you so much for having me, uh, Joshua. Before we can begin talking about your book, I'd like to talk about what got you into science. It's a question I'd like to ask all of our scientist guests. Could you describe for our listeners the story of when it was you knew you wanted to be a scientist? So I don't think it was any one thing in particular. Certainly, uh, actually, when I was about five years old, uh, my parents bought uh, this encyclopedia, Childcraft Encyclopedia. It was just this very small, informally written encyclopedia meant for basically elementary uh, school age kids. And I, I, for whatever reason, I skimmed through a whole bunch of them and I really focused in on one called uh, World in Space. It was volume four. It's this blue book. I can still kind of see it in my mind's eye. And uh, I just thought it was fascinating, all this different stuff, things about the Big Bang and the size of the Milky Way galaxy and all the different planets in the solar system and so on and so forth. And uh, so I kind of got got into it. I didn't really have any idea of what a scientist was or what they do at that point in time, uh, but it certainly got me fascinated by uh, things that would later turn into uh, my scientific career. One of the themes you raise throughout the book is the concept of amplifying collective intelligence. You share a number of interesting stories to shore up this point, including an inspirational story about then 15-year-old Irina Krush, now an international master and woman grandmaster in the international chess circuit and how in 1999 she appeared to significantly influence the crowd of people playing Garry Kasparov in an online competition. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? Yes, sure. This is an amazing story. Uh, Microsoft decided to run this online game. So anybody in the world could sign up uh, for this chess game and register a vote for the next move. And on the other side, you had Garry Kasparov actually together with a bunch of uh, uh, helpers. So he was uh, the, certainly the, the world champion chess player at the time. He actually had the highest rating that anybody's ever achieved before or since. So he was at his absolute peak. And so the world chess team went backwards and forwards uh, with Kasparov. And uh, I mean, the game, Kasparov said afterwards that he expected he'd win easily in no time at all. And instead he described it as the greatest game in the history of chess and said that he had more trouble with that one game than with uh, than with any other during his whole career. Um, and and one of the things that happened in the game was initially the world team was um, they didn't really work as a unit, uh, but then this uh, young woman Irina Crush, she was uh, fourteen or fifteen at the time, 
kind of emerged, she was paying a lot of attention to a lot of different people and she acted to facilitate uh, uh, the discussion. So she was basically, she was running backwards and forwards, talking to lots and lots of different people on the world team and kind of synthesizing um, all that information into a really a coherent analysis. And that was kind of how the... uh, I guess they got the benefit of the the world team's best ideas. I should say, actually, uh, she was uh, definitely... I mean, she was a great chess player. She was actually the US women's chess champion at the time, but she just... She was not in Kasparov's uh, class. Uh, She was ranked way, way below him. So it wasn't that she was playing Kasparov, but rather she was helping the whole world team play uh, Kasparov. One of the amazing things to me about that story is that Irina was only 15 at the time, well before the internet had matured to its current level of influence. And I'm wondering, to what extent do you see Irina's use of collaborative problem-solving as emblematic of today's generation of wired science students? Well, so they, they did a whole lot of stuff kind of ad hoc on the fly. Um, so Microsoft did, they did a couple of things up front, which was they started a forum, which is not so dissimilar to forums that you see on uh, today's websites, you know, all these different threads and lots of people contributing. Um, and uh, they also, they picked out four junior players who were very good, like Crush, well, she was one of them, in fact, uh, and they got them to post their recommendations in advance of the world team voting to influence the world team voting. So these were outstanding uh, junior chess players. But then as the game went on, Actually, they they started to kind of improvise their own little social media um, uh, kind of solutions for how to communicate better and better. Uh, the uh, the uh, chess uh, agency, or basically uh, uh, Crusher's management team, which was called Smart Chess, uh, actually they arranged to build what they called an analysis tree, uh, and the idea was that they'd store on a website. Uh, essentially all the best analyses that had been done by different people uh, on the World uh, Team Forum. So you could sort of see, it was like a reference uh, place, almost like a wiki, uh, I guess we'd call it today, where you could see uh, you know, what the best uh, you know, different lines were and where the mistakes were or where the traps were, that kind of thing. And that seemed to really have helped and have served as a bit of a reference, uh, kind of a most a collective memory for the world team. You chronicle the evolution of citizen science across the course of science blogs and collaborative problem-solving sites like Galaxy Zoo or even the collaborative protein folding game Folded. In an October 29th op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, you make a compelling case for the importance of open science as a conduit to a new era for science, and you've done a lot of writing about the importance of opening up science on a professional level. So I'm wondering, what are your thoughts about how we can incorporate this culture into the K-12 through systems around the world? Oh, right. So, I don't know, maybe we could talk about something like Galaxy Zoo for a bit. Does that uh, sound like a good plan? Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so Galaxy Zoo is this great site that was started. Basically, there are these big robotic telescopes. They take millions of photos, uh, far more than any one person or even a a small team can look at. And so it's it's hard to say, well, how, how do you analyze all these images of the sky? If you've got a million galaxy images, it's not like a person can sit there and classify them all as you know, spiral versus elliptical or you know, do they have a bar, don't they have a bar in the middle or whatnot. And so some astronomers at Oxford had the idea of crowdsourcing it. They just asked people to sign up 
And they actually got 250,000 people to sign up and do 150 million galaxy classifications, uh, which is an awfully large number of galaxy classifications. And they've used it to make all sorts of discoveries, uh, ranging, they've discovered an entirely new class of galaxy, they've discovered some, you know, things, you know, very fundamental things related to the Big Bang. Uh, they've discovered hypervelocity stars. These are stars moving so quickly that they're actually not gravitationally bound to our galaxy. Um, and one of the great things about this, about this site, is that it's sufficiently uh, open and accessible to anybody. That, in fact, uh, you can certainly you can have. There are school students who are uh, very active on it. You don't need uh, any uh, sort of. Uh, really specialized scientific uh, training, and yet every time you make a galaxy classification or make a post to the forum, at some level you're adding something permanent to science. Like that's, it's not, you know, you're not just wasting time, you're not doing something meaningless. Uh, 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 it, you know, it's not just that it's fun, but when you, you know, say, oh, that's a spiral galaxy. That's actually something that's potentially of permanent value. Uh, the people actually running Galaxy Zoo have released uh, at least some of the the, uh, uh, the data, uh, people's clicks, basically people people's classifications of the galaxies, and so you know it's it's potentially the case that in you know a hundred years' time people will still be using uh, using that data. I'm not sure, but. Uh, so that would be a, a fascinating outcome. So is this the kind of thing, could you see something like Galaxy Zoo or Foldit being applied uh, at a uh, primary or, sec or secondary school level? Yeah, so I've certainly heard uh, that a number of high school teachers have experimented with uh, using uh, Galaxy Zoo in the classroom. Um, uh, uh, I've heard sort of occasional rumours as well about uh, elementary school teachers actually doing the same thing. Um, I don't. I haven't actually talked to any high school students to see how much fun they uh, they find it. Uh, uh, certainly, it's something to just you know to do for a lesson or so. Um, it, it seems uh, like a useful thing to do, partially because it you know it, it's not just that you're classifying galaxies and maybe learning a little bit uh, about that, but actually you know it's connected to the very cutting edge of what's going on in science in ways that anybody can understand. Uh, and so that's a really nice kind of a connection to be able to make. The same thing is going on with uh, this game Foldit uh, that you mentioned. It's a, basically a, a computer game to find uh, you know, the, the shapes of protein uh, molecules, which are very hard to find uh, ordinarily. And basically the higher your score, the better the the, the shape is, or the more the closer it is to the actual shape found in that, that you would find in nature, and again, some of the top players actually are, uh, are teenagers. Um, so there are some very very good uh, uh, teenage uh, uh, protein folders doing stuff that's well, ordinarily would require a biochemistry PhD. <laughs> I love the notion of some very competent teenage protein folders. You know, well, it's the same. It's just like World of Warcraft, right? I mean, it, it like there really is. There's a lot of similarities. Playing a game like World of Warcraft or whatever, well, is really hard. Um, you know, and requires all sorts of amazing skills. When I watch people play, um, it's really hard for me to follow what's going on because there's so much complexity in the in the game. And fold it's 
kind of the same. Actually, I think Fold It's probably easier in some ways <laughs> uh, to play well. Could you imagine a world where uh, scientific applications could be incorporated into a game like World of Warcraft, which is purely for entertainment purposes? Uh, I mean, Fold It is a pretty... It's, it's, it's a relatively simple game in terms of its design, but uh, War- World of Warcraft obviously takes hundreds, if not thousands of hours <laughs> to really achieve and accomplish something. Yeah, um, it's a good question. Certainly, I mean, you, you can potentially imagine uh, anything involving design um, cries out to be uh, put into some kind of a game format. So... Um, so I mean, actually, Voltit themselves have been experimenting with uh, with this. They you know they want proteins of a particular shape, um, and so they've experimented with with having their uh, their gamers do that kind of a thing. You know, if you proteins of the right shape can potentially act as antibodies for you know particular uh, conditions and and this kind of thing. So that's why that's important. Um, but in general. Um, you know, there's lots of problems in science which basically boil down to that kind of a design challenge. Um, lots of things, I guess, associated with nanotechnology, for example. Certain things associated with uh, synthetic chemistry um, would also fit that kind of criterion. And so maybe you can imagine games being created in those areas as well, uh, where it might very well be that it turns out to be better to be a you know a fifteen year old or a twenty five year old uh, who wants to sp- uh, who's not necessarily trained as a scientist but wants to spend a lot of time getting really good at the game than it is to maybe have a PhD in the relevant subject area and not spend as much time on the uh, on the game. Another theme you highlight in the book is how the culture of scientists to publish or perish and those of foundations who support their work are not always in step to, as you say, incentivize open science. And this is a particularly poignant issue as universities are themselves reassessing their strategies and missions. Could you describe some of your suggestions for shifting this culture? Well, I guess I'll start by just saying you know, what I mean by that or what the the cultural situation uh, is, which is if you, particularly if you're a young professional scientist who wants to build a professional career, the way you do that is by publishing papers uh, and uh, you know, describing your discoveries. And unfortunately, that means that sometimes other ways of sharing knowledge, maybe collaboratively, uh, aren't always necessarily valued very well by your peers. Just to make a really a concrete example, uh, it might be, for example, that you do experiments in your laboratory, which are really hard to describe to somebody else, uh, in written form in a paper, but it's really easy to take a video camera in, uh, make a video, upload it to YouTube, and just show that to somebody else. So the, the YouTube video is maybe very scientifically valuable, but at the moment, uh, there's not a whole lot of reward uh, for scientists in sharing that kind of information. And so uh, they tend not, well, uh, they're very reluctant to do it, even if personally they're very enthusiastic about it. Uh, it's just hard to justify spending that time when you might already be working 60 or 70 hours a week, um, uh, you know, working towards your next paper or whatever it is. Uh, it, it's hard to justify that kind of time investment. So I've kind of, <laughs> I haven't actually answered your question. Uh, this is kind of the it's the intro to to your question at some level. The the the, the background. Um, 
uh, as for how you actually change that culture. That was your question, right? Yeah, it's, I'm wondering how you can what you can do with this shifting of the fact that that scientists are are really um, the, the culture that they have to go through the culture to in order to um, succeed in the academic culture of science requires certainly as you're working toward tenure and probably toward higher levels of, of association that you uh, you have to constantly publish and that and so the whole relationship and the whole paradigm with which scientists uh, academic scientists in particular and foundations work is not, um, uh, as you say in the book, incentivizing open science. And I'm just uh, wondering if what could be tweaked in those to those cultures that would uh, well, enable this. So I, I don't think there's any silver bullet solution. Uh, instead, there's lots of little things uh, that can be done. Um, you know, if you want to zoom out to like a really high level and think about you know, politics and big grant agencies like the United States uh, National Institutes of Health. Certainly, there's heaps that can be that people at that level uh, can do. If the National Institutes of Health, uh, you know, was just to amend uh, their funding recommendations or their their, their uh, excuse me the uh, instructions to scientists on grant applications to say something like, uh, you know. Uh, uh, you know, scientists are encouraged to submit non-standard evidence of impact, um, meaning things like YouTube videos or whatever. Um, that would have a big. Uh, that that would certainly start to have uh, an impact. But just at a kind of a more everyday level, almost. If, you know, if you're talking about, say, a senior professor at a university, somebody like that. Uh, they can certainly they can append a, a line like that to a, a job advertisement, just saying scientists uh, are encouraged to submit non-traditional uh, uh, forms of uh, of research impact as part of their uh, job application, and it starts to make people think. Oh, you know, what have I done? Do I run a blog? Am I on Twitter? Am I creating scientific value? Am I doing valuable research work? Um, that maybe doesn't fit into the stuffy old uh, journal system, but but that is nonetheless really valuable. Are there any academic systems uh, in any specific countries that you think are doing a, a good job at this? Uh, or? Uh, it's all over the map in different ways. Um, the astronomers overall actually do a pretty good job at doing things like uh, systematically sharing their data. You can go online and download all kinds of... Uh, Stuff not just kind of well, well, pretty downloading pretty galaxy images is valuable in its own right, in my opinion. But uh, but uh, yeah, you can actually download massive quantities of 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 data from some of the world's uh, best telescopes and run your own analyses. Anybody can do that. But then if you go into other disciplines, often uh, a lot of the data is just totally locked up. Uh, in fact, in some cases. Uh, it, not only is it locked up, in fact, it will probably never be recovered. You know, people will spend millions of dollars, in some cases, of taxpayers' money collecting data in the lab, and then it will sit there on hard disks for years, and ultimately, uh, you know, those hard disks will be thrown away or nobody will be able to read the format, that kind of thing. And certainly a lot of that has uh, has happened, despite the fact that this is in many cases, valuable knowledge that was obtained with public money. Can you think of any countries or cultures on the planet that are 
say, doing a better job as, at incentivizing open science? Yeah, um, it, it's not so much really uh, at a country level or a cultural level. It's not like, you know, you speak Italian or, you know, you speak Greek and therefore you're better at, uh, uh, at this kind of open science. There's definitely... Um, some situations within particular fields, I mentioned astronomy before, uh, where uh, often for complicated historical reasons, uh, the situation is a bit better in that field than it is maybe in adjacent fields. Um, an organisation that's done a lot of good stuff in the UK, for example, is the Wellcome Trust, which is one of the big funders of uh, uh, genomics uh, work. Um, they've certainly been a real, a real leader and so... Uh, you know, that that has a big impact, particularly within England, although it also has some international impact. Uh, but these, I wouldn't really say that there's so much cultural things. Well, maybe maybe that's the right way to describe it, but uh, I tend to think of it as being, uh, uh, well, you know, in this very focused way, oh, people who've been impacted by the Wellcome Trust uh, tend to have a different attitude to sharing their data, say, than do people who live maybe in some other country uh, and rely on different funding sources. Michael Nielsen, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us, and more importantly, thank you for writing this important book. Once again, I'll include links to Michael's website, michaelnielsen.org, which is www.michaelnielsen.org. Michael, thanks very much. Thank you so much, Joshua. Oh, my God.